You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. So stand together with me as Brother Killian comes. Brother and Sister Killian came about a year ago here to CTK and found his way back in the St. Louis area attending St. Louis University. And you're in your PhD, and I won't begin to try to remember the title of the study that you're taking there, early Christian uh, church history. But he's going to be here for about three years, and we're so honored to have them, and of course, teaching here and helping Sister Cheyenne's, helping with the play tonight. But I want him to come and preach the word of the Lord to us. Would you put your hands together? Let's receive what God has for us in this house tonight. Amen. good to be in God's house this evening. Amen. Amen. Yes. Honored to have the opportunity to address this congregation. I never want to take the awesome responsibility of handling God's word lightly. Um, turn, if you will, in your Bibles to the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start our reading at Hebrews chapter 12. I want to give honor to Brother and Sister Romine, we're glad that they're feeling better. Uh, we give honor to to Pastor and uh, to Pastor Sullivan in his absence. Um, there may be a few of us here in the building, but there's uh, there's plenty of us gathered together in the unity of the faith. Amen. Yeah. Let's turn our attention to the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter twelve, and we're going to read the first three <laughs> verses. Hebrews 12, starting with verse 1, the writer says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joys that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And I want to draw our attention back to that phrase in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author. Looking unto Jesus, the author. With the help of the Holy Ghost, I want to talk to us tonight from this subject, when God writes. When God writes. Let's consecrate this time to God in prayer. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We know that there are many who are watching online, but we thank you for the opportunity to gather together physically in your church. Jesus, we ask that you would touch this time. Please touch me, Lord Jesus. I want to speak your word to your people. Your word says your sheep hear your voice, and they hear you, Lord Jesus. If they don't hear me, it's my fault, not theirs. Please open their ears. Help them to receive your word. We do all this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. It's a little bit nerve-wracking to be me right now because uh, my very first pastor is in the audience tonight. Uh, Brother Brother Bollinger, I, I got baptized um, 
whenever we were attending his church in Pinckneyville. So uh, the student has become the teacher, and it is, right. it is awkward. It is awkward. So uh, pray my strength in the Lord. The author of the book of Hebrews, who some believe to be Paul, personally I believe it was Luke, whoever the author was, spoke of Jesus in this wise. He called him the author and the finisher of our faith. The author and the finisher of our faith. And whenever we think about the Lord Jesus, it is right and it is proper that we think about him as if he is an author, as if he is someone who writes. He's especially the author of our faith. If we look in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33, speaking of this new covenant that we are in, speaking of this gospel of grace that we are in, the prophet Jeremiah spoke on behalf of the Lord and said, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. God is the author of our faith. He writes this new covenant message of repentance, baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. He writes it into our heart so that we can love him and serve him with all of our heart, soul, and spirit. And it is easy for us sometimes to think of this new covenant message as if it is something novel. It's called the new covenant, and so we think that it's entirely new. But this is a misapprehension. This is to look at things wrongly, because the Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 that those who are saved are written in the book of the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. The Bible says also in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 that an angel flew through heaven having the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who were on the earth. Even though we are living in a New Testament, it is an everlasting gospel. Repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Ghost was not God's plan B. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God was not caught off guard and had to think, well, how how am I going to fix this now? How am I going to solve this problem? No, it was his sovereign plan from the beginning. It was his plan from all eternity to have a people who were called out for himself. He is the author of our faith. He wrote this in eternity that one day there would be a man named Jesus and he would come and he would live and he would die and he would redeem us as a people unto himself. That is God's story and he is in the midst of telling it. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith and it is also right and proper that we think of Jesus as the author of our individual lives. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, and starting at verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Jeremiah was looking at his world, the, the calamity that was going on around him, and he could feel insignificant. How can I ever make a difference? 
And God said, before I formed you in the belly, I had a plan for you. I had a story for you to tell. I had a role for you to play in the, in the world that's going on around you. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he did. God is the author of our lives. He is the author of a larger story that we get to play a part in. Think about the story of Joseph. You look at the story of Joseph, and it would be very easy for Joseph to think, why me? Why do I have to be the weird one who has these dreams that nobody understands? And why do I have to be the one that my brothers hate? And why did I have to be the one who was thrown in a pit and then sold into slavery and then sold to an Egyptian and his wife lies on me and I end up in prison? And it looks like his world is going crazy from Joseph's perspective. But when it's all said and done, and when Joseph is on the throne, and when Joseph is the one in charge, and his brothers are standing before them, he is able to look at it from heaven's perspective and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save many people alive as it is this day. I want to encourage us, if we feel like our world is out of control, this is a bigger story that we are part of. This, there is a bigger story that we are a part of, and it is so big that we cannot even begin to fathom how big it is. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, the apostle makes a very interesting statement. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, he says, For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death. Notice this, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Yeah. We're made a spectacle. That word spectacle there, if you were to take the time to look it up in the Greek, the Greek word here is theatron. That's where we get our word theater from. God has made us a theater. Yeah. God has made us a stage play for the world and for angels and for men. The word for world here does not just mean our earth. It does not just mean our terra firma, but it's the Greek word cosmos. The story that we are part of is cosmic in size. We, we think that our light and momentary troubles are, are a problem, but they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed at his coming. We are part of a cosmic story. Heaven and earth is watching. A lot of times we tell people, be careful how you live. Be careful how you walk because this world is watching and we've got a bigger audience than we realize. He said that they, we are made a spectacle, not just to the world, but to angels. Unto angels. Hear me, church. There is an angelic audience for the Christian life that we live. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.12 that the angels desire to look into this faith that we have. 1 Peter 1 and 12, it says, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Realize this, we are part of a, a, a huge play, a huge stage play that God is putting on to vindicate his character. There was war in heaven, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12. There was a fight in heaven over whether Lucifer would be like the most high God or whether he would be cast down. 
The Bible says that he drew a third of the angels away with him. And from that moment until now, God has been enacting a play. We'll let Lucifer have his time. We'll give the devil a chance to show you how good his plan will work out. And if you read Psalm 82, you realize that God gave all of the nations of this world over to demons and over to idols, and he, he chose Israel for himself. He said, I'm going to take this small, insignificant nation in the corner of the world, and through it I'm going to bring a Messiah, and all nations will be gathered to him, not because Israel is mighty. He, he says this in the book of Deuteronomy, I did not choose you because you were mighty. I did not choose you because you were strong, but God chose the simple things to confound the wise, and heaven gets a front row seat. Yes. And they don't understand. They desire to look into these things. If you, if you think about the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible says that on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels facing one another, and their eyes were toward the mercy seat. They were looking at the mercy of God. And you think, why? Why is that the case? Because they can't understand it. They know what sinners look like. They were in heaven whenever Lucifer rebelled. They were in heaven whenever Lucifer mounted his rebellion against God and got cast into hell. They know what sinners look like, and yet they look into our church services, and they see sinners. (laughs) They see rebels against God, somehow forgiven, somehow, and they don't understand it. They know what happens to sinners. They know what happens to people who rebel against God, and yet we get to stand before him, redeemed by his blood, saved by his love. God is part, God is the author of a bigger story of which we are but a small part. Looking back now at Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto the author is part and parcel of us being sanctified from sin. Notice what the author says. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Whenever we realize that Jesus is the one running the show, Whenever we realize that he is the one in charge, it's a whole lot easier for me to lay aside things that God hates. It's a whole lot easier for me to set aside things that God doesn't like because this is his story, and I'm going to do my best to follow his script. And I'm going to do my best to be a good character, have a good character for the Lord. Notice what it says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus died for us. We can live for him. Jesus died for us. We can live for him. He did the hard part. He did the hard part, and he opened up this way of salvation for us. We can live for our Lord. Notice this also, that God is not merely the author of our faith and God is not merely the author of our individual lives. 
but we know that God is also the author of sacred scripture. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for exhortation, for righteousness, so that the man of God may be truly furnished unto every good work. God has authored these words especially, and, and in this day and hour, there, there are few proclamations that are more important where we have to draw the line and fight. The Bible says we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This book is God-inspired. It's not the words of men. It's more than just a story, but Jesus is the King of glory, and we need to proclaim this, and we need to teach this. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible is more than just the words of man. It's more than just something that man dreamed up, but it's the very word of God. But when we think about the Scripture... Most of the time, when God wrote something, he used a man to write it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That's a great prophecy, but he used Isaiah to write it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a wonderful, saving passage of Scripture, but he used Peter to say it, and he used Luke to write it. Most of the time when we read the Bible, we are reading God's words through men. But I find three times in Scripture, whenever God wrote with his own finger, whenever God himself wrote, with his own hand. First time God ever wrote is in the book of Exodus, chapter 31 and verse 18. God has descended upon Mount Sinai. The mountain is smoking. There's there's the sound of thunder and the sound of a trumpet. And Moses goes up on that mountain to commune with God while the people stand around the bottom and, and wait. And the Bible says... In Exodus 31, 18, And God gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Written with the finger of God. The very first time God ever wrote anything, he wrote the Ten Commandments. The very first time God ever wrote, God wrote law. God wrote law. Since we live in grace, a lot of times we fail to appreciate the law of God, but how many knows that God still has a law for his people to live by? The Bible says in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, starting at verse 1, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness... And there Israel camped before the mount. 
And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, now notice what the Lord says. This is the opening scene of the Ten Commandments moment. So notice what God says. Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God's word establishes us as his people. This is our identity as Christians and especially as apostolics. We are people of the book. That is our identity. The reason we baptize in Jesus' name is because the book says so. The reason that we pray in Jesus' name is because the book says so. The reason we speak in tongues and worship vibrantly is not because that's just our church culture, but it's because the book says so. We are people of the book. This is one of the earliest descriptions that that Muslims gave Christians in the 600s and 700s, whenever Christianity and Islam first began to interface, they referred to Christians as people of the book. That was their identity then, and it should be our identity now. We are people of the word. Even today, even though we live under God's grace, God's word establishes us as his people. Notice what the apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. I want to speak to us, brothers and sisters. If we are not living in obedience to God's word, we need to check ourselves. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. If you're God's child, you're going to obey God's word. That's, That's just how it works. He that saith, he knoweth me and doesn't keep my commandments, Yes. We just read it. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. That's right. God's word establishes us as his people. God's law is perfect. You cannot add to God's word. You cannot take away from God's word. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. There's there, there are benefits to walking in obedience to God. There are benefits to obeying his word. God's word is perfect and it is an en- it is it is a weapon against the enemy. This is why Bible memorization and reading and studying, if if the only word you get is at church, you're doing yourself a disservice. Dust that book off, read it at home. The, The Lord Jesus himself, whenever he was being tempted by Satan, 
He's God in the flesh. He could have responded to the devil however he wanted. But three times he said, it is written. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He went back to the book. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is perfect. It is powerful. It is a weapon against the enemy, and it is a way for us to examine and to cleanse ourselves. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. If you're, if you're struggling in your life and you're trying to get over a sin, you just keep being tempted and falling back into it, get in the book. Read the book. Study scripture. Memorize scripture. Praise scripture. Fill your life with scripture and see if God won't cleanse your ways. There's just one problem with God's law. As perfect as it is, as holy as it is, as righteous as it is, there's just one problem with God's law, and that's us. (laughs) Because we are weak, the law can make us good, but it can't make us perfect. Look, if you will, in the epistle of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In verse 3, notice what the Apostle Paul says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. As perfect as the law is, as holy as the law is, written with the finger of God Himself, the law could not make us perfect because it was weak through our flesh. Look, if you will, in the epistle of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, starting with verse 18. Hebrews 7, starting with verse 18. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law had made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. The law was perfect, the law was holy, but it was weak because we were unable to keep it. As good as we are, we all fail. As good as we try to be and as as much as we try to live for the Lord, our efforts always fall short. We always seem to, to put our foot in our mouth or do something we shouldn't do. And this creates another problem because built into God's law is punishment for disobedience. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say amen. God's law has punishment that's associated with our disobedience. So this creates a problem for us because we're all sinners. And that means that we're all cursed. 
First time God ever wrote was the Ten Commandments when God wrote law. The second time God ever wrote anything with his own finger is in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, this is after Jerusalem has been destroyed. The, the Hebrew children have been carried away into Babylon. And the Bible says Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and concubines might drink therein. And they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. Now this is a totally different sermon for a totally different day, but what we see here is we see these, these wicked pagans taking these vessels that were intended to worship God with, and they're putting the wine of Babylon into the cup of the Lord. The wicked wine of Babylon they're putting into the cup of the Lord. Saints, as vessels of God, there's some stuff that just doesn't belong in us. Amen. There's just some things we don't do, we stay away from, we avoid, because we are holy and consecrated to Him. Amen. Now the Bible says in Daniel 5 and 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick, upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote together one against another. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say. God's hand shows up in the room and starts writing stuff on the wall. I'd, I'd say you're going to be kind of nervous. And, uh, and so the, the, the words are written on the wall, but nobody in the room can read it. Nobody in the crowd can understand what the, the words on the wall mean. And that sounds an awful lot to me like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that if our gospel be hid, it be hid to them that are lost. And if, if we're going to save this lost and dying world, there needs to be a Daniel in the room that can explain the Word of God to people. If, if someone comes to you on your job with a question about the Scriptures, the answer should never be, let me talk to pastor and I'll get back with you. <laughs> the Bible says that when Philip was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, it says Philip began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Whenever we get an opportunity yeah. to share God's Word with people, we just need to do it right then. Yeah. Amen. And so... The words are written, but they can't understand it. And so somebody has the idea, why don't we go get Daniel? Why don't we go get the man of God and see if he can explain this strange writing? And in Daniel 5 and 17, it says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the, the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel says, All right, I'll... I'll explain it to you. Skipping down to verse 22. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. 
and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, wood, and stone, which see not nor hear nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy days, hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. Now notice, notice what's said. And this is the writing that was written, Mini, mini, tikel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The very first time God ever wrote, God wrote law. And the second time God ever wrote, God wrote judgment. He said, you're weighed in the balances, you're found wanting. And that is the shape that we are all in. Every last one of us, that's the shape that we're in, that whenever we're weighed in the balances, whenever God, whenever God sets his righteousness on one side and our good works on the other, we are weighed in the balances and we are found wanting. We do not measure up to his goodness and to his grace. And this is because the law was structured around works. We read it just a second ago in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. Cursed be everyone who confirmeth not the words of this law to do them. The law was structured around works. Notice what he said in Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 3. Jeremiah 11 and 3. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. Whenever we disobey God's word, we are cursed. The law is a tool to show us our own sinfulness. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 7 then, What shall I say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Isn't, isn't that the way it is with, with little kids? You tell them they can't have something, and then that's the very thing they want? Right. Don't go over there. Over there is where they're fixing to go, because you told them they couldn't. And, and the author of Romans says that that's the very same thing that happened with the law, that whenever God said there are certain things that you can't do, that that created desire to do them in our sinful and wicked hearts. And when we sinned, we were brought under judgment. The wages of sin is death. God wrote law, and it's a perfect law, and it's a holy law, and it's good but we can't live up to it because we're weak, and so God writes law, and then God is forced to write judgment. But I'm thankful that these are not the only two things that God ever wrote. Amen. Because the third time God wrote, we encounter it in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Jesus is standing in the temple in John chapter 8, starting at verse 2. It says, And early in the morning Jesus came into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. 
And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto her, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. She was a sinner. They caught her in the very act. Now Moses in the law commandeth us that such a one should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Notice this. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground, as though we heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. When we look at this situation... We see that the Pharisees are are looking for an opportunity to get Jesus. They did this several times through his ministry where they would set up legal disputes. The law says this, but but what what do you say? And they're trying to catch him. They're trying to trick him so that they can have a reason to arrest him. And so they bring this woman to Jesus, this sinful woman who is guilty, and they bring her to Jesus and they cast her at Jesus' feet, and the very things they go to are law and judgment. Moses, in the law, says stoner. That's law and judgment. Moses, in the law, says stone her. But what do you say? See, the first time God wrote, God wrote law. And the second time God wrote, God wrote judgment. The third time God wrote, God wrote mercy. Because this woman came condemned, but she left free. This woman came judged, but she left with the grace of God. And even though she deserved to be stoned, she went home to start a new life. I think it's very interesting. Oh, I'm so glad that Jesus does not listen to the hypocrites. Oh, I'm so glad Jesus does not listen to the hypocrites. Because think about this. This woman was caught in adultery, in the very act. They said so. That's the very first thing they said whenever they brought this woman. This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Where's the man? They caught him in the act. Where's the man? Why is she the one in trouble? Right? Why, Why is there not equal punishment for the situation that's going on? Jesus did, he completely disregarded them. He completely disregarded these these accusers that had brought this woman. And I'm so thankful the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Jesus is no longer listening to the devil's accusations against us. He no longer has any time for that, but he is interested in restoring and saving. And notice notice the context of this passage, right? This This is interesting because... This passage is right in the middle of some very important things. We read at the end, John 8, 11, She saith no man, Lord Jesus saith unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. 
First thing Jesus gives her is he gives her repentance. Whenever we find ourselves under God's law and under God's judgment, the way we avail ourselves to him is through repentance. If, if you have broken God's law, if you, if you have done things that God says is sinful and you feel condemned by your conscience and you feel condemned by, by your circumstances and maybe God has even had to judge you, you know, maybe God has even had to author some judgment into your life like he did in, in the story we read in Daniel. And you feel like your world is upside down. Repent. Repent. If you will repent, Jesus will not condemn you. If you repent, Jesus will not send you away, but he will forgive your sins. This story occurs right before, or right after, I should say, a statement that Jesus made in the chapter previous, John 7 and 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Yeah. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. If you want to avail yourself to Jesus' mercy, if you're under the law and you feel condemned, you need the Holy Ghost. Yeah. You need God to fill you with his spirit. You need to do what we read very early on where, where God fills you with his spirit. You speak with other tongues and he begins to write his law in your inward parts. He begins to write his law in your mind and then it won't be hard to serve him. Then it won't be hard to step away from sin because his spirit will be in you and helping you. Praise God. I want to close this evening with this thought. And then I want to give us a time to pray. Because whether you're, whether you're joining online or we're, whether, you're, whether you're in the house, God's law is real and his judgment is stern, but his mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. And I don't want anybody to leave without an opportunity to get to that mercy. When we think about the things that God wrote, very first time God ever wrote, he wrote law, and we know exactly what he said. We can quote it. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, honor thy father and thy mother. We can quote it. And when God wrote judgment, we know what it says. We can quote it. Meeny, meeny, te kelu farsen, your weight in the balances, you're found wanting. Your days are numbered. It's over for you. But when Jesus stooped down, and began to write in the dirt. From that day until now, we do not have a clue what Jesus wrote in that dirt. We can speculate. I've heard, I've heard speculations that he was writing out the sins of the Pharisees or that he was writing out the names of the, you know, the people in the crowd and all the things that, we've, that they've done. We can speculate. But from that day until now, we do not know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Because we all know what his word says. We all know that the wages of sin is death. Yeah. But when it comes to mercy, I do not know what God has forgiven you of. And you do not know what Jesus has forgiven me of. 
But whenever we stand before Jesus, he in his mercy can write, can write mercy in the dirt and then wipe our sins out. And, and people will be left to wonder what was said. And I want to give us an opportunity to pray tonight. If, if you've got something between you and the Lord or if you've got something you need to pray about, whether, it's, whether you're in the house or, or if you're online and you want to kneel down in your, in your home at your couch, I want to invite you, take an opportunity. Take an opportunity to get Jesus' mercy. He wrote law, and it's a real law, and he wrote judgment, and it is real judgment. Hell is hot, and eternity is long, but God also wrote mercy, and he gives us an opportunity to experience his mercy today. Can we pray, church? Can we close this service out with prayer?